0: Patrick Hanley how are you doing this morning sir
1: i am doing really really good how about you james
0: i'm good i guess it's afternoon over there on the east coast
1: it is we we are across the 2 o'clock timeline uh, we are definitely in the afternoon out here
0: so for those on the west coast who are listening to this you can plug in like google translate or something like that <laughs> so you can understand what patrick is saying <laughs>
1: I won't use, I will, I'll use the word wicked as little as possible. I promise.
0: (laughs) Isn't it fortunate that wicked doesn't have an R in
1: it? It is because we can't pronounce those. So it does help (laughs) us a lot. (laughs) Uh,
0: Patrick, who are you?
1: So I am the, uh, rifle product manager at Sig Sauer and most recently added ammo to that responsibility. But, uh, for the last four years up until recently, I've been working strictly as the rifle product manager here.
0: And is this your first job in guns?
1: No, this is actually my, uh, my second full career job in guns. I worked at a different manufacturer prior to this, and I had a, a brief outing too where I started my own company that I uh, also worked in the firearms industry. So I've been doing this now for about, uh, this is my 11th year.
0: Do you... Do you hunt? Do you shoot? Do you are you just interested in like the manufacturing and production side of things?
1: The entire reason I exist in this industry is from hunting. I I uh, grew up uh, with a father who had me casting a fly rod and shooting birds at the early age of six and seven, and I uh, became very interested at that point. And I kind of grew up that whole way my whole life. And uh, the the big game side of it uh, became more of my own interest as I got into uh, college as I started to want to do the next big thing and started to get interested in whitetail hunting uh, which out here is obviously one of the uh, only things that we do have uh, outside of some of the other big game like moose and a few others but I had never really uh, dabbled or looked at the west but for the most part at that time I was a I was a became an avid whitetail hunter which made me do some crazy things to try to get into the gun industry and I ended up getting my foot in the door and here 11 years later I sit.
0: Whitetail hunting is is a different scene basically anywhere that you hunt whitetail but a lot of whitetail get hunted at at of tree stands primarily if we're being honest but back there in that in that north country you guys do a lot of tracking.
1: We do this is a unique part of the uh the whitetail world where the midwest everything is very much what you see on tv uh it the, the northeast has long been known for the, the trackering out here just because of the fact that we have such big woods and uh we have early winters so the the snow hits the ground and uh it, it's very tradition up here it's you have a lot of guys that have been around for decades i think a lot of people are familiar with some of the famous families like the Benoites, who were really really big into tracking and these guys kind of set a standard up here and yeah this is like uh up here it's wool jacket blue jeans and get on your hoofs and go f- uh track a deer in the snow all day and it's interesting because it's for what people are used to seeing on tv for whitetail hunting you're doing a lot more homework when you're tracking than you are sitting and waiting you following an animal an entire day, trying to use the sign he left behind to determine if you're following the right animal and the things that you're doing are correct in the order that you're following him. And there's, there's a lot of pieces to it. It's very, very interesting.
0: It is. It is interesting. I love tracking and, and tracking elk it tends to be an effective thing when you have the right conditions to do it because an elk generally moves into the wind and their primary sense of alerting themselves to whether there's a predator around is, is wind is, is smelling those predator species. So if they're moving into the wind so that they can tell what's ahead of them, then they do have a vulnerability as to what's behind them, which is their tracks and you. And I assume the same goes into whitetail. You know, I imagine that the, the thermal shift is a little bit different since you don't have quite as much terrain as what we deal with in elk country.
1: Yeah, we, we do have some. I mean, in the, the part of the rut when I usually get enough snow to be able to track up here, a lot of the white tail both from pressure and from, uh, the thermals move up into the higher grounds. And it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting way to hunt because a lot of times, uh, what I'll do and a lot of the people that track out here do is you're getting up to some of those higher areas early in the morning. And like you said, you need to be, incredibly cognizant of the wind and it's very interesting to see how a whitetail's behavior in higher country away from people is uh, as compared to the ones that are down in the lower lands here so even though the northeast is not known necessarily as like the biggest mountains in the world we have a, a, a fair amount of mountain ranges and some of these big whitetail out here will find themselves pushed back into the northern parts of the state like in northern Maine and northern New Hampshire and Vermont and uh, those those deer will get pushed up high and uh, you can go on quite a journey trying to track one of these deer down and it's also interesting out here in the sense of one of the reasons tracking exists out here uh, more so than in other parts of the country is it is a very unique place in the sense that I've had a lot of people that come out here and they're always surprised that we refer to deer in pounds and not in inches. And that stems back to that tracking mentality where guys were always looking for that, uh, that hoof print or that sign of the uh, of a buck seeing his, the only thing that his antlers were really used for was you were trying to determine if he stopped the feed, just how big he may be. So you knew you had a 200 pound deer on the hoof, just cause that's what people were seeking out. It, it comes back more in this part of the country I believe we're, we're very much still meat hunters as compared to uh trophy hunters, which is, is very interesting. And a lot of people that come out here are surprised that it still exists to that extent, but it is very, very popular out here.
0: And I love that. Um, I, I love that you guys are actually weighing deer on a scale and remembering and telling people about that way. And, and that is a really good metric of determining whether an animal is, is actually mature or not is his body size. You know, antlers, that can be all over the place.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I mean, that's why tracking, as I started to learn, it became very interesting out here because, uh, you know, a lot of my friends would get into it with me and they'd call me up and say they found a, uh, a print of this monster deer that was a, a 200-pound deer. And it's interesting because you can't learn everything about a deer from its antler size or just as hoof when you're tracking there's so many little bits and pieces you have to put together I've seen some I've I've gone out and had some friends show me some tracks that they swore was the biggest buck in the woods and we they said they bumped a the doe while they were trying to catch up to it and I'd look at the track for a little while ago I hate to tell you this but you were following a doe and it's it's one of those things that they're the, the animals out here do get to the point where the ones that get up deep into the mountains, you can see these significant traits about them. And it's not their antlers that you can tell immediately based on, you know, their weight, how their hoofs plays. And when they lay down in bed, that's one of the easiest ways to tell what you're actually following. It's, it's a really, really cool craft. And I, I'd like to say that I'm semi-decent at it, but the guys that I've hunted with that are good at it. It's always been amazing to me when you pick the brain of an old timer out here that they can walk 100 yards and identify to the tee what they're following. It's really unique in the sense that they're able to determine as much information as they are about a deer just by following its track and not actually physically seeing the animal or seeing it not just based off of rubs or typical things, but actually seeing the marks that it's leaving behind in the woods.
0: So... You, you grow up in this environment with this specific type of hunting, and you're hunting waterfowl, you're hunting birds, you're hunting small game, you're hunting deer, moose, all this. And then you end up at Sig Sauer, which is largely known as, as a tactical or military company, strong in law enforcement, strong with military, self-defense. And yeah, they, they make ARs, and, and ARs absolutely have their place in hunting but they're they're not really iconic for hunting. They're not known for that. People are still getting into that mindset that this is a useful tool for hunting and the the calibers that ARs can shoot are also limiting for some of the larger game applications. So is this like purgatory for you that you know you're you're in a gun company and uh and, and they're not really building hunting rifles?
1: No. So you know, one of the things that I thought was incredible when I got here is the the two gun companies that I both started and worked for prior to this were both majority hunting. And uh, when I got here, you know, that was obviously still kind of my mindset because I had been doing it for so long and it was what I was interested in. Um, and I certainly, exactly what you said, I knew some of the stuff that we had as far as the rifle side of it goes, leaned more towards what our what our company was as a just based on its history and its customers that we deal with but at the same time it was very interesting to see the internally the amount of people the level of knowledge they had of the the hunting side of the market um and the amount of experience they had in that side i think it was just you know up to the point of recently it was something that we never kind of exposed because we had to figure out a, a strategy that allowed us to get into that market without not being ourselves um in the sense that if you look around the industry at a lot of the uh models of firearms that have been coming out in the hunting industry they they stay pretty pretty straightforward and plain to what they've been for years and years and years there's not a lot of gains in technology there and i think that's always been sig's big thing what is the i mean we we sling new products out people know like crazy because our our culture is how do we make something better? How do we get a better mousetrap? How do we make it last longer? How do we make it do this? And it was really, I think, to this time, it was figuring out a way to connect those dots to do that in the hunting industry, so that we could get into it, but also not leave the heritage of what we are as a culture. And I I think in the last couple of years we've started to get to that point.
0: And the introduction into this is the first bolt-action rifle that SIG has produced, which is the Cross Rifle, and it it's finally coming to life. It's coming off the production line right now. It's getting shipped. Um, you know, the very first of the Cross owners in the world are starting to get these guns in their hands. How did this concept for this rifle come to be?
1: So this was the, – the concept of the Cross was tossed around uh, multiple times when I was – first at SIG and the conversations that were had around it, a lot were stemming closer to the the PRS type of gun or the sniper community and what we were gonna do there if we ever came out with a bolt gun. But there was never a a heavy uh, amount of interest in pursuing that path because we had so much going on. But it actually started, uh, the, the the bigger conversation started About uh, two years ago, when myself and uh, my boss, John Prasser who heads up product management, me and him were hunting out west, and we went out there on a rifle hunt, and we were carrying, I had a a Kimber, and I believe he had a Weatherby, and they were both great guns. We sighted them in. They're they're perfect accuracy-wise, weight-wise as a gun, but I remember one of the things with those two guns, with a suppressor on them and having them at a full barrel length, we spent more time during the time out there in the woods fighting with getting the gun around obstacles than we did fighting getting the antlers out of the elk that we shot just because the gun became such a, a broomstick. And I remember sitting there with him saying, you know, with all the technology that exists out there, why does this have to be like this? Why does this have to be a such a, uh, a, a large thing to carry around in the woods when everything else has gotten so smaller? It, it felt like I was carrying the the flip phone of rifles around with me the entire time that I was out there. So we started talking about it more and more. And I remember the conversation that me and him had where he, I had said to him, you know, I looked at our MCX as our kind of staple gun at the time. And I said, you know, the, the concept of a shorter folding gun to me is in all reality is something that like is perfect for this type of environment. And, you know, once again, trying to tie the two heritages together, when i went out that was my third or fourth time in the west seeing how the environment out there was different than hunting in the environment out here but the environment out here it's very interesting i had mentioned to you how people hunt you will never see anybody hunting out here with a long barrel and part of that is because of it is it is tough to take a 300 400 yard shot so over the years the 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 model 94 has been the king out here uh, in a thirty thirty, as well as a few other rifles that are in shorter configurations. So the concept ended up becoming, in the two of us talking, is you kind know, of bringing those two pieces together: the Western mentality and the Eastern mentality. And how do you make something that looks like that? And you know, his immediate concern was: so if something like this cross looks like a like an AR, will people perceive that as a a hunting rifle? And I said, well, that's something that we have to create. It's something that we have to go tell people that this type of firearm exists in the military world, exists in the professional world for a reason because it's more compact, it's lighter weight. Just the nature of all the things that it does is exactly what a hunter is also looking for. So even though in appearance it does look like a, a chassis gun or an AR, it's in reality it's a much more functional rifle for a backpack type of gun for a gun that you're going to be carrying around for possibly a week or two out in the backcountry, trying not to hit yourself off every branch you go under.
0: What are some of the myths about perceived benefits of longer barrels?
1: So what ends up happening, and this was once again tied back, I learned this out here when I started working at my first gun company. One of the guys that I had talked to taught me this premise of the point of diminishing returns on a caliber. And the way he explained it to me was like, you know, when you go in this, uh, a store, everybody makes a, a 24 or a 26 inch barrel for every caliber. But the reality of it is that n- no two calibers are the same. The, the the way at which that powder burns out of the uh, out of the barrel, there is a point when you're still getting gains, but your gains drop off significantly. So I brought that back into this conversation when we started doing this in the sense that we were looking at it and I had talked to Daniel Horner, who is our our professional shooter we have, and I brought that to his attention. And he's, you know, I said to him, I said, Daniel, here's the thing. You've been working with guys for years as snipers that we sell rifles to in AR platforms, and we've never sold a barrel over 18 inches. And he said, yeah, they, they don't need more than that to have a, a gun out to the, the ranges that they're shooting. And I kind of had that conversation of like, you know, how does that pertain to a hunting rifle? So what we ended up doing is having Daniel take two guns and he started with a 26 inch gun and went one inch at a time and shot these things in in different calibers, configurations all the way down to 16 inches. So we could see what that actual uh, point of diminishing returns was. And as a hunter, you have to start to ask yourself are you getting as much in velocity as you're carrying in weight? And that's what we try to determine for the, for a hunter that wants to be able to shoot out to that, you know, a long range, do they need that full 26 inches of barrel? Or can you get that enough of that ballistics out to an average shooter shooting range and carry a much smaller gun with much less barrel length? And that's where we ended up landing with the, the six five, the three hundred eight, and obviously in the the two seventy seven, which is its own animal.
0: And on on my end of this, you know, I I am an average shooter. I'm an average shooter who is fortunate to have access to above average equipment. So in the cross rifle that I was shooting with a sixteen inch barrel, in a three hundred eight, I was able to engage targets out to fourteen hundred yards. Yeah, like, holy crap. Um, <laughs> So what what I've noticed with, with every gun that I've ever cut a portion of the barrel off of, it has gotten more accurate after I did
1: that. Yep. We actually Why is thought, that? We actually saw that, ironically enough, we had that question a few years ago when we came out with, what you're familiar with, was our, our Rattler. Um, that was a five and a half inch gun. And when we made it, I remember everybody in the building saying, you know, when you do that, you're going to lose all your accuracy. And I was like, well, actually, you might be surprised. And I remember we went over uh, the first time we shot it at a range and at 100 yards, we were out shooting our DMRs with this little teeny rattler. And what that stems back to uh, that a lot of people don't understand with barrel length is the further out you get on that barrel, the the more length you have, the more what they call barrel whip you get. And barrel whip is has a major effect on accuracy, which is why you see when people want to go shoot PRS matches, they're going to such a heavy contour because it's minimizing that ability. Also, a great example is a carbon fiber barrel. A lot of people think carbon fiber is to save weight, which carbon fiber barrels typically weigh as much as a standard barrel in that configuration, but they significantly increase the rigidity of the uh, barrel, which is incredibly important because now you're maintaining that accuracy. But the average hunting rifle, as we've all seen it, these are medium contour or pencil barrels that when they have that type of ability to whip and flex, you're actually losing accuracy as you get to that longer length.
0: So every, every barrel has harmonics and is moving around as this explosion of the powder being ignited causes the bullet to travel down the barrel. M- makes perfect sense. So there's really two factors that we deal with, magnitude and frequency. So the distance between the farthest to the side that that barrel points while while the bullets traveling down it is the magnitude. And then the, the frequency is how fast that's going. So if you have a, a barrel that's 10 feet long, you're going to have a low frequency and a high magnitude. So it's going to wag like the tail of a dog. And if you have a short barrel, then the frequency increases, but the magnitude decreases. So the barrel is pointing closer to the exact spot that it was initially aimed at when you actually initiated that shot sequence. Is that a a fair explanation?
1: That is absolutely fair.
0: Okay, so we shortened up this barrel, and we still maintain sufficient velocity to be able to engage targets at really any distance that's reasonable for that cartridge, And maybe even some distances that are unreasonable for that cartridge in the, in the case of kind of what I was doing with it earlier this year, but you know, the, the easy button and the things that we've typically seen with rifles that have a similar look to the cross is just to make an action and then bolt that into a chassis. How, how is the cross different from a chassis gun?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of those things in appearance that immediately when people see it they that that's the first thing we hear. It's a very much a oh, that's that's a chassis gun like XYZ gun out there. And the reason that it varies and the reason that it is completely different is the fact that we were very keen on making this into a a receiver that was going to be based upon accuracy and the way to do that is to minimize some of those moving components, so we are all in that understanding of the fact that when you build a rifle, so you build a Remington seven hundred, which we've all done, bedded it into an action, we understand the critical uh, how much of a critical part that betting plays to the accuracy and by doing what we did with the one piece receiver, what you're creating there is this there your bedding block is your entire receiver there's no ability for any components to move there's no ability for receiver screws to come loose which is a a common thing that i've seen in the past that can cause accuracy to change and basically if your barrel is accurate on this gun then you have an accurate platform you're not adding in those bits and moving pieces that can fluctuate the accuracy so when we all sat down and it was like white paper what is the cross it all started with that conversation of no matter what it is, it's a one piece receiver. And that wording came from guys who were military snipers, professional shooters, guys who've been doing this their entire lives that were like, this is the one thing that as a non-starter has to happen because this is going to be what makes this receiver kind of a, something that people can build rifles off of, something that people will immediately take out of the box and it will have the accuracy because you're creating that, that kind of foundation of accuracy out of the receiver.
0: So we've, we've got a one-piece receiver that this barrel is going into and it's being held in by a barrel nut and the headspace is preset with a jam nut. So that's not something people have to worry about. And because of this, they can change barrels at home.
1: Correct. This is uh, the system works very similar to how uh, an AR-15 works. You have a indexing pin on a barrel extension. As you mentioned, the jam nut goes, and we actually preset the the headspace at the factory. So it's as simple as removing your barrel nut and putting on a barrel nut at the same torque, uh, and you're 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 done. I mean, in the configurations that we have today. Um, Everything uses the same bolt face. Hopefully, if I get my way, that will change down the road as we get more calibers. But it's right as it sits today. It is a very easy thing for an end user to be able to buy a new barrel. And we knew that would be critical, too, because I've been a part of about uh, outside of my own company. This time it's within my own company, but I've been a part of a lot of uh, new caliber launches. I remember when I was at my last job. Everybody's saying this six-five Creedmoor will never take off, and we sold tens and tens of guns in six-five Creedmoor, and I think we all know where that landed today. So when you launch a new caliber, it's very difficult because typically that that mindset of the end user is, you know, I if I buy this, am I stuck with this? Am I am I going to buy a gun that I won't be able to get ammo for, or am I going to buy a gun that I go on a hunt and I can't find ammo for it? So. Knowing that we had the 277 in the works, and we wanted that to become a rifle that we wanted to start people to start seeing that hybrid technology as something that they wanted to venture out and try, we knew that that interchangeable part would be a critical part of this because it gives people that ability to buy this gun in multiple calibers and and have the ability to know that they can go to a 6.5 or a 308 if they purchase it in 277, or they can go buy a 277 barrel to try for the the gun that they have and the configuration they have. it.
0: Well, I definitely want to talk about the, the 277 here in a minute, but with, within this one piece receiver, what kind of trigger did we put in there? You know, is it the same type of trigger somebody can expect to get off of a a stock rifle that's on a shelf, something that they're used to?
1: That was one of the trickier parts about the gun, because we had to make a, we had to make a trigger that was going to be, seen in the market as a good trigger because we had to make so many changes to the mechanism that it was something that out of the gate nobody was going to have an aftermarket solution for and the reason for that is the one-piece receiver because you're you're now taking yourself away from having a hanger style trigger off of a receiver due to the fact that your reach uh from the receiver down to the trigger itself (sighs) is, is further so we had to create a, a trigger mechanism that we knew would be both, you know, that would work well, that would be safe, that would allow us to have something that people would deem acceptable. And so we created it as a cassette style trigger and it was a hundred percent designed from the ground up. Um It's something that we spent a lot of time knowing that the being a two stage trigger, it had to be very crisp. It couldn't have, you know, a lot of creep to it. It had to be able to smooth and from a, a factory standpoint, I've been sitting on an assembly line for the last two weeks being the trigger grinch downstairs trying to find something wrong with them. And I have to tell you, from a, a, a perspective of a factory trigger, what we were able to do here, it is a, it's a phenomenal trigger. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar on the bolt action side with a, a two stage trigger and a hunting rifle. I think a lot of us have seen. I know you've had time to spend time with it, James. If you're using a a rifle in a situation where you're going to put your gun down on a bag and you're going to take a precise shot, I, I don't think there's anything better to have than having that two stage trigger because you can learn, you can get such better mechanics learning off of it.
0: Yeah, if you take a shooter like Dan Horner, you can give him a Mosin Nagant trigger and he's he's still going to you know outshoot me, but. I need a good trigger. I I really do. That's one of the most important features of the entire rifle for me to be able to shoot it well is having a good trigger. And a two stage for those who don't know means that there is a portion where the trigger moves and it's like taking up the slack of the trigger and then it'll come up against a harder point, you know, somewhere between two and four pounds, depending on how you've adjusted it. And then that trigger is going to break cleanly without any perceptible movement at all. And for me, being able to, you know, get my sights on target, get my body position correct, and then take up the slack of that trigger is very calming and it puts me in a in a very comfortable mindset where my my engagement for actually breaking that shot is more of a process that I feel in control of. And then that shot breaks nice and clean and you know you get a a good result on your target.
1: That is a perfect.
0: So that's what I like about the two-stage trigger, and then we get into this stock that we can adjust in ways that I've never been able to adjust the stock on a hunting rifle. Talk talk me through that a little bit.
1: Yeah, this is another one that we talked thoroughly about. With this was our thought process being: you, you buy a stock with the uh, for a PRS gun or for precision shooting gun. And your your mindset becomes, I need this stock and I need it in this configuration because when I go to take a long range shot, I want to be able to adjust my cheek welds well properly on my scope. I want my length of pull to be perfect. I want to have a little bit of offset in that that butt pad so it sits on my shoulder just right and on my bag just right. But then we get to the point where we go and we're going to take a 500 yard shot at an animal and we bring a traditional style stock with us that has none of those features. So one of the things with this rifle that we had talked about that made perfect sense was incorporate that same type of thinking into a a locked configurated stock that you could set it up, get yourself so that you felt good about your long range uh, shooting position, but also still be able to make manipulations in the field. And uh, we we gave this thing uh, four ranges of movement. You can actually adjust the cheek piece which has a very unique system that I particularly, when I first started hearing about it from the engineers, I was like, no dice guys. And then they showed it to me and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So the cheek piece actually releases off of a spring hinge and you actually put your head down and get it to where you want it, which allows it to be super quick to adjust in the field. And then as soon as you find that position with your opposite hand, you just click that lever in and it locks it firmly into place right where that is. So you're actually able to get yourself right to that scope level that you want to be at and then immediately lock it very easily. So that's the first level of position we paid close attention to. Then the length of pull, you have about a two inch ability to stretch that length of pull both ways, which I believe is a a much better system than a lot of the stuff that we've seen out there with a lot of these spacer systems in traditional style stocks, because it allows you to quickly manipulate it. You don't have a bunch of moving parts and you can take that rifle and you can put it in the hand of a smaller stature shooter to immediately go out and be able to go shoot that same rifle that you've been shooting and get it back quickly in a position for yourself. And then we also added uh, the ability to offset that stock either way and raise and lower the butt pad.
0: And raising and lowering the butt pad, makes a huge difference if you're shooting uphill or downhill in terms of making sure that you have good contact with that butt pad against your shoulder. And most of the shots that I've seen where people actually scope themselves in hunting situations are on one of those angled shots, typically when they're shooting uphill because they're not able to make that adjustment and the gun ends up lower on their shoulder. And their forehead is closer to the scope and then bam they get cut by the scope that's just not going to happen with this gun if you make that adjustment
1: 100 percent. that's exactly where that came from and one of those were based on experience with me hunting with a friend that went to shoot uphill off of a bag and did exactly what you said tucked it into a jacket and thought he was tucked into a shoulder and ended up getting that scope giving him a, a nice kiss in, on his eye and that's something that happens, like you said, more regularly than not, where people are shooting at different angles. And a lot of times I think people see that as like, oh, that's cool that the butt pad moves up and down. But it is a huge feature for when you're actually taking different angle shots, which, as we know, in the backcountry is probably at least a good 50 to 60 percent of the time.
0: And then being able to adjust the the angle of that butt pad beyond the, the vertical, you, you know, you can tip it left or right. That makes all the sense in the world because I don't know about the rest of you folks, but my shoulder doesn't go straight up and down. So being able to adjust this thing a little bit so that the gun actually fits into my body just makes a world of difference in, in comfort as well as function.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. And we actually did what you just said is something else we did that was based upon user feedback of people having different positioning is one of the things that you'll notice if you look at the, the cross, we had a lot of arguments back and forth with this, what should the cheek piece be like? And if you actually look at the cross, that was something else that we looked at That is, uh, manip- you can manipulate on the gun is the uh, cheek piece actually turns two ways. So you can remove it and flip it the other direction, which lets you get your, it, it has a little bit more of a dip on one side for people who want that ability to kind of curve it into their face. And then on the other side, it's sits a little prouder for people who wanted to be able to sit up a little higher. So we we tried to dive into as many positions as we could to get people to be like, okay, what fits you better? What fits this person better? And then we tried to manipulate that into that one stock. And it was pretty cool because as soon as we finished this stock, it was all designed 100% for the cross. And we started seeing some professional interest from people on the other side of like, hey, that's what we want because it has the ability to be so many different things. That it gave us, it gave us an, an option that we realized that people want as, as many of these adjustments points as possible because no two people shoot the same.
0: Now, a horse is only as good as its jockey. So let's talk about 277 Sig Fury.
1: Yeah, so 277 was something that was stemmed from, like a lot of things at Sig, it, it stemmed from a, a military side. Um, we were being asked uh, to go and create a cartridge in a 6 point8 caliber that would allow uh, the military to have a machine gun that had basically uh, they wanted the same amount of payload, but they wanted the ammunition to weigh less as I'm pretty sure the guy on the other end of this line knows that ammunition might get a little bit heavy after a while, James.
0: Yeah, definitely if you can get if you can get ammunition that weighs less and does as much or more. That's a better deal for the dudes who are having to pack this stuff around.
1: You could tell the difference of people who have carried and who have not carried this because when you start talking about the differentiation in weight, they're like, oh, well, that's pretty insignificant. But if you're carrying thousands of these rounds, it makes a massive amount of difference on the weight. But the, the other aspect that the military was asking for was that payload. And in order to achieve the lighter weight with the payload, we had to come up with A configuration that allowed us to have both. And where we ended was this uh, kind of hybrid case that has a stainless bottom and a brass top. And the reason that this worked for us is not because something like this has not existed in the past because similar type cases have, but what we actually had to do was figure out how to make it manufacturable. Um, It's something that in a you know, a one-off environment, it could be done. But when the U.S. Army is saying we want millions of rounds, you have to be able to do that. So that was where we had our biggest project. How do you manufacture it? How do you do it at a level that not only can you serve the commercial market, but you can also serve the military for their needs? So we came up with a collar system that's inside of there. And basically this washer that inserts between this, the stainless steel and the brass allows that to connect together firmly to get rid of case separation potential. So that allowed us now to have something manufacturable, lighter weight, and then what it also allowed us to do, which is what made this cartridge unique, is it allowed us to ramp up the pressures from uh, standard pressures on a rifle cartridge. You're in that fifty-two to 55,000 range. This allows us to go up into the 80,000 range. So the pressure becomes significantly more, which not only gives you the ability to have a Faster bullet in a smaller cartridge. You're also getting from A to Z quicker. So in that shorter barrel discussion we were having earlier, uh, they the army wanted a 16 inch barrel that shot 3,000 feet per second with 140 grain bullet, and so we had to achieve that with this. And when we got that completed, we we said to ourselves, well, this is something that also works for the hunting world. You're you're creating a cartridge that gives people a shorter barrel with a magnum velocity. So now you're able to have a much smaller package that delivers a uh, a big game bullet coming out of a much smaller package than what they're used to.
0: So we're going from zero to sixty with a lot less road. Exactly. Let's talk about the bullet. You know, the the type of bullet is really important to me. And as long range has become increasingly popular, I see people that are that are really focused on bullets that have a really good ballistic coefficient that perform very well on paper that they can hit steel targets at long ranges with and you know they think that shot placement is is you know the beginning and the end of the day and that that terminal performance of a bullet on the target is is really secondary to everything else when you know to me it's it's absolutely primary so trying to balance all of this is, is kind of a difficult task. And where has that led SIG in, in its choice of ammunition?
1: So I think, you know, one of the things that we did unique last year, James, that you were a part of is we had done all this development with the Army, but we had not gone into the world of what is a hunting bullet like in this SIG Fury. And, you know, my comment to everybody internally was as a... In the sense of who would want this, it would make more sense for the Western hunter in most instances than a uh, traditional whitetail hunter that's going to be shooting at max uh, a few hundred yards. So our our goal was to try to do that. And so we we were kind of guinea pigs when we went out to uh, Colorado to try some of these traditional style bullets that we've used in the past that have been kind of thin skin game type bullets. And we saw some bullets that performed okay, and we saw a lot of bullets that didn't perform well at all. And so what we left with out of that was basically the understanding of a couple things that we needed to accomplish, which was we needed a heavier bullet, and we needed a bullet that was going to uh, maintain a better structure once it made impact. And what we ended up doing, ironically enough, is this year at SHOT Show, I ended up sitting down with the folks from uh, Nosler. And they, ironically enough, were launching their new 27 Nozzler at the show with this new Acubon bullet. Um, and it just made perfect sense for us to go over and sit down and have this conversation. And we've been working with them since on the, uh, this development of a 150 grain Acubon that not only gives us a heavier bullet for a hunter, it gives us a better bullet in the sense that it's better for a thick skinned animal. But another thing that we found, um, not in an extreme manner, but certainly in some manner, is those bonded and solid copper bullets have a tendency in a higher pressure round like the Fury to actually maintain a better structure coming out of the barrel. So there's less chance of deformation because that bullet is a much stronger bullet coming out of there. So it actually improved our accuracy, it improved our performance, and it improved our energy. So. It was actually a good thing that we went and did some of that development last year. We learned a lot uh, when we came back talking to those guys about what we had seen with the bullets that we had, and it was able to give us this this newest round. And it is going to be everything it promises, and the and the ballistic performance we've been doing with it.
0: What's the future of this platform?
1: So the thing about Sig Fury is, as we say, two seventy seven Sig Fury, and like I said, that all initiated from the military, but. The case technology is what I refer to as sig Fury in the sense that it it has so many avenues in which it can go, and you know we've heard people kind of throwing out those things since we launched this of like, well why couldn't you just do that in a six five Creed more and then you'd have a, a rocket ship and and you can and, and you can do it we've We've done it for military application we can do all those things. Um, what it becomes is the pr- pressures are significantly different, so from a responsibility standpoint as a manufacturer. We're looking at it and saying, we don't know what exists in the last hundred years of rifles in a 308 Winchester. If I make this cartridge, where will it get used? So a lot of people have seen what we're doing is like, hey, you're taking a cartridge that you could make for me that I could put in my, my other bolt gun or my other AR, and you're making it proprietary. In this sense, we're not trying to make this technology proprietary, but we are trying to make it unique to make sure that it's used in a rifle that has been designed to work around the pressures of it. So what you'll see coming down the road will be more developments in different cartridges that will be unique in the sense that they will be their own new style cartridge. But one of the things we've definitely been advocates for is we've been feeding this information to uh, Sammy, who is kind of the mothership for the ammo companies, to get all this technology information so that they can do it and feeding it to the gun manufacturers and giving this to everybody like, Hey guys, we want this to grow down the road. And if we grab this and squeeze it and hold it against our chest, it's not good for anybody. So we want this technology to breathe and grow. So we're pushing it out there, knowing that if we can do that, that we will get to the point where other manufacturers are working with us on stuff like this, like we're doing with Nosler and we'll be able to take this technology and make it something that is like, it's the new standard and, that's kind of how you know Daniel Horner described it as like it's like going from black powder to smokeless powder. Like what we did here is a is an invention that's allowing us to take ammunition to the next level, and by doing this the way we're doing it, it's allowing the guns to follow to make sure that the guns structurally can withstand these pressures that we're we're achieving, and it allows all these other companies like ourselves to be able to shorten some of these barrel lengths and still maintain strong ballistics.
0: I'm very much looking forward to to where this gun goes, to where this cartridge goes. I think this three-piece technology is a huge deal because we're able to to get these magnum type performances out of a short action cartridge. And it means so much for the military. It means so much for hunters. And it just makes all of us that more much more effective and, and ethical in the field. And then, you know, this rifle itself i I enjoyed hunting with it last year. I enjoyed competing with it and shooting competitions this year, and you know I'm taking it back into the field and, and you and I are going to be barreling through the the alders and and willows of Kodiak, hoping not to get eaten by you know a a bear bigger than my future when we're on our way up to the the steeper parts of the country to uh to find a mountain goat.
1: I think you're worried about that I, I think you forget who I'm with. <laughs> I, I, am, I myself am not worried about it with Daniel Horner standing next to me. I'm just going to probably go down for a second, count to three, and see how many holes are in the bear.
0: Yeah, going to be <laughs> quite a few. But uh, no, I, I'm looking forward to that trip. It's going to be an awesome time. And, and again, that's going to be another tremendous test for this rifle. And we are never going to stop. Putting it to the test and trying to find ways to break it so that we can make it better in the future.
1: Yeah, I think you saw last year. This was, this last year was the first year that you had uh, started working with us, James. And I think you saw that we're a little unique in the sense of how we managed last year's hunt. And to me, being a hunter, coming from a a background of seeing how product gets used on my own behalf. And I, I believe that, you know, one of the things that will be great to the development at SIG is that. We've all committed this same level of the rifle will be used the way that the rifle is used by the end user when we put it to the test, when we beta test this thing. Because what I've seen in the past that always bothered me, and and we've all seen this, is a lot of the times when when we would launch a new rifle, it'd be like, hey, go out and uh, drive out to this tree stand in this nice uh, King Ranch and hop out and get in that tree and shoot that whitetail when it comes in at six o'clock and then we'll get some pictures. And to me, as an end user, I always looked at that as like, this isn't telling me anything other than a rifle shoots a deer and it works. I wanted to see that all of those features that I'm telling everybody makes it so great all the way up until that shot were also there. And I think doing Alaska this year, doing Colorado last year, we we made more gains based on the feedback from you guys and all these things that we're doing to be able to go back to the table and say, hey, you know what? This should be more like this because when we had it in the pack, it didn't work. This should be more like this because it wasn't shooting well off of a tripod this way. We're, we're learning real world stuff that when people grab this gun and they take it out in the field and they start using it, they're going to see immediately that there's, there's points to the features that we're putting in this gun. It's not us guessing. It's us experiencing and creating technology based on experience.
0: Yeah, and, and for me, you know, I was able to take this gun and strap it to the back of my motorcycle, go on an almost 3,000-mile ride, which is the vibration test from hell, <laughs> shoot, shoot a, a sniper competition, ride across the Rocky Mountains to another state, and in my first night there, shoot a bear, roll the bear, and the, and the gun up on my bike, and then and then ride home. Like it is amazing. There's never been a gun before that could do this. It it's not it's not replacing something else that's out there. This is this is a new
1: pie. A hundred percent, and that's exactly what we wanted. And it, the the cool part about this is. I know you've seen a couple of new things that we've been working on on the optic side and we're still doing stuff on the rifle side. People are going to see in the hunting world now that Sig is in it that this is this is our culture, this is us. If you if you look at this company from the inside out, I I literally can honestly tell you that we have 10 times the amount of engineers to any company I've worked at and the the mission here of new and better is 100% clear all the time and bringing that into the hunting world to me on the firearm side, I I feel like a kid in a candy store right now because I'm walking into this world of, you know, the ability to go in and like there hasn't been anything done in so long. Where do we go next? And we're already looking at that. We're already coming up with some of those things. And I think it's, it's cool. The fact that we have a diversity of people here too, where we have, Guys with military experience with hunting experience and with shooting experience and you can kind of sit in that little round table and bicker and fight and come up with that no my idea is better than yours and at the end of the day that final presentation of what you put out there is is exactly what it should be because you've got all the best brains to piece together to put that puzzle and get it completed the first time correctly so you're going to, I think people, when they see this rifle and they actually put their hands on it, they're going to see that we did everything we said we did, and they're going to see coming down the road that this is, we're not going anywhere on the hunting side. We we have a, a vast amount of products coming and a vast amount of commitment, and we're going to be doing some pretty cool stuff coming down the road.
0: It's a, It's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. And I'm so just fortunate to be a part of it. And. And I can't wait. Well, we brought Um, you
1: on board because you're like the Mad Max of the hunting community. You just explained it. (laughs) (laughs) You're like driving around (laughs) with motorcycles with our gun on the back. What what better flag to fly, right?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, but I love it. So thank you, Patrick, for your time today. Um, If people want to learn more about about this rifle, if they want to learn more about SIG, where do they go?
1: You want to go visit us at SIGSOUR.com. Uh, make sure you follow us on uh, Instagram also at uh, SIGSOUR. Uh, we have pretty much any new product updates that we're doing. We're going on there. And make sure if you're an avid hunter, you follow Hour hunting, which is our kind of new page. That's everything optics, ammo, and firearm related when it comes to our product lines. And that's where we're going to be showing a lot of our new stuff coming down the road.
0: Awesome. All right, sir. Well, thanks again and hope you have a great day.
1: Thank you. You too, James.
0: Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.